0: Shabbat Shalom, everybody. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley. This is The Unexpected Cosmology. And the good news is, is that I surprised myself this week that I actually finished my commentary on Bezorah Kifah, the Gospel of Peter. And to my, so I'm I'm really excited by that. Now, Rebecca, who's in the room right now, is currently editing the book. She's not editing it today on Sabbath but she's editing it and tonight what i'm going to be showing you is not the edited version so you might have some rivka effects in here and other things like that Uh, but this will be next month where we're pushing this out this is going to be next month's tuc book selection of the month and i thank you everybody who supports this ministry and um, all the things that you know we're trying to uh, look at as a community and uh, hand out to people as a whole, uh, so that they can grow in knowledge of the most high. And uh, I was gonna say something else. Oh, yeah. I mean, to my knowledge, the Kifa, the Gospel of Peter, I don't think there's ever been a line for line commentary on it before. I mean, there's, there's been. you look at Romans, I mean, how many people have done a commentary on Romans or the, the letters of Paul or the Gospels or whatever, right? To my knowledge, there's nothing out there like this. And, uh, so I'm excited to be able to turn this out to you guys. I'm, I'm excited to be able to, to, to read this off for you guys. And th- you know, it's kind of my goal, maybe once a year, even though I know that of all the things that I put out, uh, to the community and research put out there for you guys, anytime you stamp the word commentary on something, it's going to be the least read thing you can put out there. The people are like, oh, I want to learn about the reptilians. I don't want to, you know, read commentary. Right. Uh, but. I really do believe that um, for those of you who take the time to go through this, it's going to be worth your time. And yeah, I've learned so much going through this. I'm a changed man. I'm not the same as I started. And amazing about the Gospel of Peter is that what really surprised me in all this is how much it ties into all of my research across the board. It just, it just, it, it, Puts it all together all the pieces fit so with that uh hopefully you saw in the tc chat that i uh dropped the pdf we are starting tonight on on verse uh, 18 page 171 so let's get right into it tonight verse 18 but the scribes and the parashim and elders being gathered together with one another when they heard that all the people murmured and beat their breasts, saying, If by his death these most mighty signs have come to pass, see how righteous he is. Or see how righteous he is. The elders were afraid and came to Pilate, beseeching him and saying, Give us soldiers that we may guard his sepulchre for three days, lest his Talmudine come and steal him away. And the people suppose that he is risen from the dead and do us evil. Please tell me. You saw what just went down. You have to be quick at the trigger with these things. Blink and you'll miss it. For those of you who may have gone for a kitchen snack and missed out on the big reveal, I will tell you, our six, sadistic, sociopathic, and pathological lying controllers just so so happen to be afraid of the people. Say it ain't so. There are only two prime emotions, fear being one of them. The other is love. Read first, Yohanan, uh, first John four eighteen. if you don't believe me. You should know then that fear is the absence of love. Come to think of it, their living in fear makes total sense by this point. They are afraid of losing their power over the people whom they claim to love, but mostly they are afraid of being discovered for who they truly are. Another thing I'm noticing is that they refuse to come clean even when their back is to the corner. And this isn't the last time in this book that that happens. All they can do is continue manipulating the people whom they have assured by way of campaign promises to love and hope everything turns out all right for them. In the end, it sounds a lot like the controllers today that I'm describing. Plenty of supernatural occurrences surrounding the death of Yahusha HaMashiach, some of which we have read about, and it appears as though the normies were beginning to connect the dots. They may have even begun to nose around into things that were none of their business. And the Edomite temple controllers couldn't have that. If this truth business has taught me anything, it's that great awakenings call upon even greater actions of tyranny, particularly from the Zionist-backed military industrial complex. And speaking of supernatural occurrences, isn't it interesting how concerned they are about the so-called three-day temple rebuilding prophecy? It would be a shame if somebody, oh, I don't know, resurrected. And just goes to show that they were purposefully misrepresenting Mashiach's word when accusing him and his Talmudim afterwards of inciting a temple-burning riot. It was all rot. They knew exactly what he meant, even if we have to be how, even if we have to bring psychological babble and the subconscious into this. Here is something I never noticed before. The synoptic gospels agree with Kepha 18 in so much that the Yahudim hosted soldiers at the tomb right alongside the Romans. It's just that we're never shown that to be the case in the movies as well as Sunday school literature or illustrations. Given everything we've so far learned, I will ask you to give Yahu another read. And this comes from chapter 27 of that book. Now, the next day that followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priest and Parashim came together into Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day. This is Talmudine come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they, the chief priests and parashim I put that in brackets there, who that they are, went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting it watch. A raise of hands. How many of you went your entire lives missing out on that little detail? I only noticed the glimmering nugget an hour or so ago. That's what reading with rose-shaded glasses will do to the most skilled Bible scholar. It says they. The context is even given so that there is no confusion. They isn't a reference to the Romans. No, the they in this story refers to the chief priest and the Parashim. They went and secured the premises within Yosef's garden so as to ensure nobody escaped. I also take that to mean the Parashim were the ones who sealed the stone kifa has more to say on their participation though if i gave you the details now i'd not only be getting ahead of myself but then you also wouldn't receive your money's worth for the moment slap a mental bookmark on their weekend camping adventure and we'll be sure to check in on them from time to time all right the next verse we're looking at tonight is zora Kefa 19. and Pilate gave them petronius the centurion with soldiers to guard the tomb and with them came elders and scribes to the sepulchre. And having rolled a great stone together with the centurion and the soldiers, they all together who were there set it at the door of the sepulchre, and they affixed seven seals, and they pitched a tent there and guarded it. A curious thing happened on the way to the tomb. Kepha thought to name the centurion. And why do you suppose that is? I have a thought or two on the matter, and I'm curious what your yours might be. More on him after a few pages though, because see what I mean? It's like I've already stated. The perishing were all over the sepulcher like a Baptist on bacon, but then again, so were the Romans. Both parties were there and accounted for sitting around at all hours of the night at the crypt, waiting and watching. Pitching a tent is a nice little touch, which makes total sense, though no artist has ever figured officers of the law would need one. Why the seven seals though? I can't figure that one. The only ref- other reference I can find to rise from revelation. And this is what it says in chapter six, verse one. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four living creatures saying, come and see. Okay. I know it doesn't say seven seals, but come on, don't make me quote from the entire chapter. You and I both know there are seven seals needing to be opened and that it is the lamb tasked with committing the deed. Oh wait, I just found one. Turns, turns out I was quoting from the right verse, but the wrong chapter. Let's try this again. This comes from chapter 5-1. So I read to you from 6-1. This is 5-1. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a sephir written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. You were doubting me there for a moment, weren't you? Thought I couldn't come through with, come through with it in the end. Well, it took some additional searching and the forwards as well as the backwards direction but here we are the lamb of elohim who was slain and is alone worthy to open the seven seals was sealed in the grave with seven other seals because apparently the powers of heaven would obey their adorable sticker collection isn't it ironic don't you think or i should say isn't it ironic i'm not gonna say it don't you think I couldn't even begin to tell you what the seven stickers, I mean seals, were purpose for, aside from their authority. I'm wondering if their intent was to mimic the temple controller's purported lifeline with the Most High. I would probably kick myself if I overlooked the seven Ruachoth of Elohim. Uh, the Trinity fanboys avoid mention of the seven Ruachoth at all. Tossed. If the subject does come up, expect the Trinity promotion to land within the next couple of frantic sentences. Yes, you've all heard of the Trinity before, three dudes in heaven. But then what of the seven, the magnificent seven? Ah, I let that out of here. Rebecca, we need to put that in. I bet they didn't teach that one to you in Sunday school. They once again derive from Yokanan of all people. There are four notable mentions, and I'm about to show you. So we see here in Revelation, uh one, four, three, one, four, five, and five, six. Uh, I don't know if I'll read them all, but you can see they're all highlighted. Seven Ruakoth, which are before the throne, seven Ruakoth of Elohim, seven Ruakoth of Elohim, and the seven Ruakoth of Elohim sent from all from into all the earth. So speaking of Frantic tales Spins, these seven Ruakoth are almost, if not always, claimed to be the Ruach Hakkadesh by the Trinity promoters, as if that explains everything, because it most certainly doesn't. I thought the Trinity model was three persons in one. What they should claim then is three persons plus seven additional spirits in one, but you know that doesn't sound quite right. It seems to me that, that Occam's razor is correct again and that the simplest explanation is usually the best one. The seven Ruikop of Elohim are before the throne in heaven and are sent all throughout the earth. It's not rocket science. You will probably tell me Revelation hadn't been written yet, and the Jews couldn't possibly have known about the seven Ruachoth of Elohim, let alone the Lamb who was slain and capable of opening the seven-sealed scroll. Very well, then. You have given me no other choice but to open up my Bible and seek out another memory verse. Found one. And what does this come from? Oh, yeah, Yeshayahu, Isaiah 11, 2 through 4. And it's and it reads And the Ruach Yahuwah shall rest upon him, the Ruach Chokma, that would be wisdom, and Bina, the Ruach Itza, and Givura, the Ruach Death, and the Yura of Yahuwah. And shall make him of quick understanding the fear of Yahuwah. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Yeshayahu 11, through 4. And it's interesting, I, I will note here that Yahuwah is one of the Um, spirits of uh, Elohim. That's kind of interesting. I didn't ask you to count the names up on your fingers, but had you done so, then seven in total would have been numbered. Those are their Hebrew counterparts, by the way. Yahuwah should be known to you by now. The others translate to wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear, or uh, awesome reverence. Meaning, uh, not fear like I'm afraid in a horror film, but Fear as an awesome reverence in English, and as I was saying, there are seven of them in total. My personal conclusion is that Chokma is the Ruach HaKodesh that we hear so much about. Though it is true that seven is the number for perfection, we mustn't forget the set apart day of the week, Sabbath. Chokma is Yahuwah's set apart Ruach among the seven, and yet in other passages, such as Sirach twenty four, is the mother of Yasharel, which I think hopefully we'll get through uh, get to later tonight. Perhaps they were hoping to have those seven to back them in their quest to keep Yahusha buried in the earth. Now, if you guys remember when I covered the Mandela effect, I did cover this here um, uh, while well, I talked about it. But another interesting occurrence involving the number seven could be found with, with the seven braids of hair, which Delilah shaved, shaved off of Samson or Shimpshin. Well, technically, a barber is responsible for the cutting according to the most modern telling. That is a Mandela effect issue, which has already been covered in another book I've written, The Line and the Lamb. Actually, I just got in the mail yesterday. It's this this month's uh, TUC selection please try to compose yourself and to not get distracted see how easy it is for me so let's stay focused judges 16 i just want to point that out there because there will be somebody in the youtube comments section saying uh that that's a they need trying to educate me on the mandela effects i i know is what i'm saying all right this comes from judges 16 19 and she made him sleep upon her knees and she called for a man and she caused him and she caused the Barber she calls him the Barber to shave off the seven locks of his head and she began to afflict him and his strength went from him some will claim the seven locks of hair is another recent addition via the M.E. though as I have already mentioned in that article actually the book it is one astounding improvements, and just goes to show that some alternative dimensions are superior to our own i told you not to get distracted already we're getting distracted so let's stay focused there is a point to this and it involves Shiption, uh losing the power of the ruach of elohim all seven of them based on his hair we all know why that happened the same however could not be said of mashiach he fought off every temptation therefore the power of elohim never left him. actually It only seemed to increase within him according to uh, the narrative found within the book of the Nazarene. Until we take those famous last words into consideration, my power, I think we covered that last last week. There's that. Unlike Shimshon though, Ruach HaKadosh did not depart from him because of his transgressions. And now for Petronius. I know you guys are all curious about this. The centurion whom Pilate selected has a wiki article and I am in fact showing it to you which is to say nobody left living knows anything about him. It's literally a sentence. Shortest wiki article probably ever written. My only suggestion is that kepha thought to name him because he was well known and loved by the church or Rome or the Coptic church in Alexandria and Cairo, where Marcus was a member. Name drops, name drops are not uncommon in the New Testament, especially when such and such persons were witnesses to the unfolding scene. If the author personally knew them, he would include them in the narrative. My personal favorite may just be Shimon uh, the Cy- Cyrenian. He was the North African Yahudim in Yerushalayim for the holiday of Passover and Unleavened Bread Week, who was compelled to carry the crossbeam for Yahushua HaMashiach. And it says so here in Marcus 1521. And they compel one Shimon, a uh, Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. That's a total name drop if ever I've seen one. Marcus, as I mentioned, was an eventual member of the Coptic church. That's where he wrote out his sunset years. It makes total sense that Shimon would be included among his short stack of jumbled notes, being a North African and all. Marcus doesn't simply give us one name drop, though. No, we are handed three of them. Alexander and Rufus never show up in the story. We don't even know with certainty if they were born yet. Marcus appears to have been friends with the entire family, though I'm I'm probably shortchanging them. I am of the impression that Shimon's two sons were noted and well-favored laborers in the early church, maybe even in the Church of Rome. It's why Paul thinks to mention one of them One of the two in his letter, uh, Romans 16, 13, he says, Salute Rufus, chosen in Yahuwah, and his mother in mine. Yeah, Rufus receives two name drops in the New Testament, and he doesn't even show up in a single story. Supposing this Roman uh, iteration of Rufus was the same son from Marcus's Bezora, then it may be safe to assume that Shimon of Cyrene was dead by this point, because he's not mentioned. Uh, and seeing as how Rufus's mother was now the adoptive mother of Paul, and likely countless, countless others, uh, some people have suggested uh, that uh, that this Rufus is actually Paul's brother, and that he's saluting his mother. I don't know that I don't really think that's the case. Could be. Don't really know. Anywho, the New Testament is littered with personal witnesses who went on to become instrumental kingdom citizens. Though sometimes they are not even given names yokanon recalls the woman at the well and you 4 without ever making mention of her and then 14 uh, of samaria was like hey that's me i was the woman at the well we have those cases as well the reason why yokanon didn't pin 14 into the passage is a simple one the matriarch is said to have moved her family to carthage only to die a martyr during Emperor Nero's worldwide shakedown in 66 AD. Yokanon, on the other hand, is said to have moved to Ephesus. They were on opposite ends of the Mediterranean world, and it had likely been decades since their momentary meeting. He may, I mean, c- can you remember somebody you met 30 years ago for five minutes? No, you can't remember their names. Maybe you can, but highly unlikely. He may have had absolutely no clue what had become of her though I am more often than not of the opinion that these select stories were purposefully included because the gospels are written like a family quilt in so much that the individuals most greatly affected by Mashiach were intimately knitted and crocheted into the papyrus, thereby creating a beautiful portrait of the final temple generation. So just to ponder that for a second, what I'm saying here is that Yehusha HaMashiach encountered thousands of people and did all sorts of miracles said all sorts of incredible things blew people's minds but the stories that are included very likely the gospel writers were including them because they were actually uh interviewing those witnesses the people who had had these life transforming moments with mashiach they they talked to him for 10 minutes 20 minutes and it changed their life. And they're later talking to the gospel writers and they're writing them into this family quilt. So I think that's just a beautiful way of looking at all four gospels. Another story which shows face in three of the four synoptic, synoptic gospels has to do with the faith of the Roman centurion. Perhaps you already know where I'm going with this. Well, I highly suspect this centurion was another one of those NT drops. Even if we are not given a name, Specifically, I'm of the impression that the Roman centurion may, in fact, be the uh, Petronius we're after. So consider. Uh, I guess, well, I guess I'll read both of these. Oh, there's four accounts here. Okay, well, let's just go through these. Do I want to go through all four of these? Yeah. Let's take the time and go through all four of these. All right, Bezora Matzif Yahu, and when Yehusha was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, saying, Adonai, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Yehusha said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion, the centurion answered and said, Adonai, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Yehoshua heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, "All men, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Yashorel. And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham, and Yitschak, and Yaakov, in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth and yahushua said unto the centurion go your way and as you have believed so be it done unto you and his servant was healed in the self same hour all right now jumping up to uh lucas Besora lucas this is what it says now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people he entered into capernaum and a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die and when he heard of Yehusha he sent unto him the elders of the yahudim beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant and when they came to Yehusha they besought him instantly saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this for he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue then Yehusha went with them and when he was now not far from the house the centurion sent friends to him saying to him, Adonai, trouble not yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Wherefore neither, uh, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto you, but saying a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto him, one go, and he goes. And to another come and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. When Yahusha heard these things he marvelled at him and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, nope, not in yesherel And they that went were since uh returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. That comes from Lucas seven, jumping over Bizorah yokanon This will be in chapter four. So Yehusha came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Yehusha was come out of Yehud into Galil, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the the point of death. Then said Yehusha unto him, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down uh, here, uh, my child die, or ere my, my child die. Yahushua said unto him, Go your way, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Yahushua had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servant met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which in the which Yehusha said unto him, Your son lives, and himself believed, and his whole house. All right, jumping over now to the books of the Nazarene. As Yehusha went back into the gathering, a centurion came up to him and said, I have heard of your powers from many people, and my son is at home and in great pain. Will you kindly heal him? And for this I will be forever grateful. Yehusha said, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, My house is a very humble place and hardly fit for you to enter. Just command it, and I know the boy will be cured, for I trust you. I who give and take orders know the power of command. Yehusha was surprised to hear these words and turning to those who followed him said, nowhere in the land have I seen faith such as this. Believe me, many will come from east and west thinking to sit among our forefathers in the kingdom of the Ruach, but many who are heirs to this kingdom, having forfeited their heritage, will be found outside the gates and there will be weeping and wailing. Then Yehusha said to the centurion, go home, my friend, because of your faith, I will not disappoint you. All right, Yochanan gets, often gets the bad rap for being the synoptic narrative offender, when in fact, it is Lucas this time around who strays into the daisy picking field. Only Lucas refuses to have the centurion leave his home and come forward, obstinately so. You'll note that I included books of the Nazarene as an added bonus, and it agrees with the others. Among all four mentions, Matze Theahu lays a pretty strong case favoring the Roman centurion as an expected guest in the Feast of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov once the kingdom of Mashiach arrived. Adding to his appraisal, the fact that so many Gospel accounts think to mention him highlights the distinct possibility that he was a well-known and beloved member of the Ecclesia in the decades to follow. Now, in my Mary Magdalene Wife of Messiah research paper, I came this close to promoting the Roman centurion mentioned in three of the canonical Gospels as one of Miriam of migdol's lovers but then of course i didn't and here's why after a closer inspection i decided the pieces did not fit and that we are looking at two separate centurions which is why i ditched that effort allow me to explain Miriam of migdol and the roman centurion story comes together in the following account this comes from the books of the nazarene after they had eaten and were talking together, a woman came from a house nearby. She was veiled and carried an alabaster jar. Now, this was Miriam of Migdol, whose father had been a merchant, but he disowned her, for she had lived with a centurion serving in the army of Rome. When he returned to his lawful wife, Miriam had kept herself by singing in the taverns of Galil, or Galilee. The scene is the cracking open of the alabaster jar in the home of Shimon the jar maker, soon after Eliezer was resurrected from his tomb. You can read my full analysis of the situation there, though here is a quick review. Shimon was a former leper and a prominent member of the Parashim. He also happened to be the father of Eliezer, as well as Martha and Miriam, whom we can see is clearly identified as the one and only Miriam of Migdal. By this time, Miriam of Bingle has been disowned by her father, Shimon, the man in the room, which explains why she was not present for her brother's funeral or why she was hanging around outside the house in the cold without a head covering while Shimon entertained his guest. That's kind of messed up. His, <laughs> his daughter is like crying on the other side of the window, peering in and can't come in. And also why Shimon protested so when she anointed Mashiach with the nard indicating the finality of their betrothal was at hand i'm not getting into all of that again assuming you've taken the time to read the report then you will note my suggestion that Yehusha hamashiach and Miriam, the daughter of uh, shimon were betrothed at Cain of Galilee until the moment when they weren't it would take a roman centurion to call the whole thing off which is what uh, she's talking about here i'm not really sure of the specifics rape is what i suspe- suspect happened though she very well may have been seduced. After the deed was done, Miriam, in her words, chose love, quote unquote, chose love, and ran off with the centurion. Eventually, the centurion returned to his lawful wife uh, in Italia, wherever he came from, leaving Miriam alone and struggling to survive off the tip jars in the taverns of Galilee. And so I will ask, is this the same Roman centurion as the one told to us in the canonical gospels? They both derive from Galilee, coincidence. In the very least, you should begin to see why I suspected the situation deserved closer inspection. If they were, then Yahushua would have shown the centurion unimaginable kindness given my version of the situation. If this is the dude who took his fiancee, his betrothed from him. But then even if I am wrong about Yahushua and Miriam's former betrothment, and I could be, Try not to overlook that Mashiach included him on the kingdom roster. He would have had to have been a total dick to use and abuse Miriam of Migdal in the described manner. How do you suppose he dumped her? Did he buy her a drink at at their favorite tavern and then excuse himself to the bathroom, never to return? Or did he simply drop her off in the back alley, telling her to put that singing voice to good use? No, I am of the opinion that the Roman centurion found in Matthew 8, Lucas 7, Yochanan 4, and Nazarene 8 was a different centurion entirely, possibly even his replacement. Another potential scenario is that Petronius was the centurion who stood by Yahushua HaMashiach while he hung from his crucifixion device, though Nicodemus gives him another name, Longinus. And you guys know about the the Lance uh, of Longinus. Perhaps they are two different names for the simple reason that they are two different people. I really couldn't say. A lot of people in the New Testament will have two names. It was kind of common back then. The reason I am blending the two is because Petronius was in Yerushalayim in the whereabouts of Yerusha's crucifixion, or else he would not have been personally asked or ordered by Pontius Pilate to keep a watch over the tomb again allow me to take you through the finer finer details so we see in bezorah matzith 27 now in the centurion and they that were with him watching Yehusha, saw the earthquake and those things that were done uh, they feared greatly saying truly this was the son of elohim the evidence keeps stacking up against the romans crucifying Yehusha, a roman centurion who oversees the brutal mutilation of a man well beyond human recognition is pure evil. Having him stand around in the darkness, declaring Yahusha be the son of Elohim makes far more sense than the scenario given to us in Bezorah Kipha as well as the Hebrew gospels. The thought didn't simply spring to him. He had already been contemplating the matter in his heart. By his own confession, the man who was tasked by Pilate to guard the tomb of Yehusha HaMashiach was already a believer. He wasn't there to keep Mashiach in the grave. No, he was there to protect his body from being desecrated by his tormentors. Pilate heard the accusation put forward regarding the Talmudim wanting to steal his body and had the insight to know they, that they, that them, they people were projecting. It was they who were harboring evil thoughts, not the Talmudim. It it also makes me wonder if the seven seals were there to spite the Yahudim, because as you know, only the Lamb of Elohim could open them and Pilate and company knew it. How Petronius managed to get from Galilee to Jerusalem is anybody's best guess, if they are indeed the same individual and I believe them to be. What's more, Petronius may have either been acquainted with Miriam of Migdal prior to the crucifixion, knowing of the centurion who bedded with her i think that's a very likely scenario or he was quite possibly or he quite possibly became a sort of protector afterwards being that he was also a believer i have detailed miriam's plight from Yehuda and other research projects which you guys know about what happened is that herod antipas died and then pontius Pilate was removed from power and i think this happened in like 3780 there was a changing of the guard, and Yehusha's entourage no longer found themselves with an alliance. Everything changed at that point. Yosef of Rama with Eliezer and Martha, and of course, Miriam of Magdal, were cast off in a boat with no oars, whereupon they landed in the south of France. Well, here is a depiction of the events, the, the picture right here I'm showing you. The woman holding the grail is you-know-who. She is looking longingly upon the soldier on the horse who is se- seeing her off. Who is the handsome writer, and is he Petronius? All right, moving on now to Bezorah Kepha, verse 20. Hopefully, you guys are enjoying this. And early in the morning, as the Sabbath was drawing on, there came a multitude from Yerushalayim and the region round about that they might see the sepulcher that was sealed. Already, I could hear the, the calendar people You know, honing in on that as the Sabbath was drawing on. Sitting around in Joseph's garden waiting upon a resurrection sounds like the perfect way to spend an afternoon, particularly a Sabbath. Unfortunately, that is not exactly the picture that is given to us. It appears as though the Romans are stationed at the tomb to ensure that the Talmudim don't commit to any funny business, but only on the surface level. Notice how the Talmudim were never brought in for questioning. This bothered me for years, but now I know why. Sure, they were hiding, but it's not like they were squatting in the uh, Siloam Tunnel as fugitives for days on end, numbing their legs in the water. There are only so many places in the city of Jerusalem where one might hug oneself in the fetal position if Pilate were actually interested in releasing the hounds. He wasn't nobody was hunted down Pilate's actual concern relied upon what the temple controllers were capable of whereas those same scribes and Parashim were keeping a careful eye on Petronius and his bros to make sure they were up to the challenge everybody it seems is sitting around at the tomb of Mashiach giving hard uncomfortable hawk-like stares at everybody else and if only I could direct a movie on this, it would be awesome. And now a multitude of people have arrived to join them. I'm thinking the scene is awfully familiar with what is given to us by Matiphyahu during the crucifixion. Uh, this is what he says in chapter 27 of his book. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, you that destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you be the son of Elohim, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said he saved others himself. He cannot save if he be the king of Asherel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Mockery. Given the context of Kepha as well as every other Bezorah, particularly what I have shown you here in Yahu, the people likely came to Yosef's garden for no other reason but to mock him, kick a corpse while it's down. Why else would they hang out with Yahusha's murderers, the Parashim? The Talmudim sure as Sheol didn't want to come around. Come to think of it, I can list off a thousand better ways to spend my Sabbath than with those clowns. Though so it would be pretty awesome to spend a Sabbath sitting around waiting for the resurrection otherwise. Delivering insults is something to be done when there is no argument to be had. The person's flinging words has already lost to reason and is given few other options but sticks and stones. Pay attention to that. Uh, oh, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. Remember that the next time you are visited by online trolls. So when they start insulting you, when they start throwing accusations at you, it's because they've got nothing. They've, it, they, they already have the losing argument. It's over. There is no other passage of scripture that I have found which gives this sort of insight into the hours between Yahushua's death and resurrection, particularly when paired with the matzith passage. Think about it. The quip about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days, but being incapable of saving himself, derived from the sheeple, though it was started by the parashim. They were simply repeating what their controllers told them to say right on cue right down to the script too. Likewise, Mashiach's murderers were working up the crowd, claiming they would believe in him if only he could come down from the cross himself. Well, he walked out of the tomb and they still refused to repent of their schemes. Just goes to show that they were actors all along. Why do I get the impression that they were shouting at the tomb as well? All right, moving on to verse 21. And in the night, when Adonai's day was drawing on as the soldiers kept guard uh two by two in a watch there you go rebecca that should be a w there and there was a great voice in the heaven and they saw the heavens opened and two men descend from there with great light and approached the tomb and that stone which was put at the door rolled of itself and made way in part and the tomb was opened and both the young men entered in among every resurrection account that i have yet to discover particularly as it pertains to the two angels arriving from heaven mizora kifa may in fact be the most supernaturally eerie no that is not the word i should have used to characterize the scene breathtaking hair-raising how about electrifying i like the last option best though Yahu shares the same qualities you should know that i just spent the last 10 or 15 minutes searching through the thesaurus and cannot find anything that properly satisfies my feelings on this verse. The way in which Kepha describes the voice and the heavens opening in the, in the moments before the dawn and the two men descending in direct route to the crypt. You had to have been there, I guess. How would Kepha know about any of this, by the way? He was still hiding out after the cock crow episode. None of the Talmudim were anywhere within the vicinity from what I can tell, and the women hadn't arrived yet. If the Yahudim are still camped out in the garden, then we are not told, as it is once again only the soldiers manning their station who have a close encounter. They were paid to shut up about it, were they not? Well, then, how do we even know they were paid not to talk? It's all further confirmation that Petronius was a somebody in the early church. In the very least, the scene was described by him. Well noted among critics of the four Gospels is the disagreement regarding the number of angels, which is to be expected among witnesses of any crime scene. In this way, Kepha happens to part ways with the synoptic Gospels mostly. See for yourself. So we see here in Matthew 28, uh, verses 1-4, through And after the close of the day, the the Sabbath growing light into the first day of the week, came Miriam of Migdal and the other Miriam, and behold, the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of Yahuwah descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards did shake and became as dead men. And then we see in Marcus 16 and entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment. And they were frightened, and he said unto them, Be you not know, frightened. So, Bezorah who depicts only one angel, uh, one angel sighting among the Maryam's And when it happens, he appears to be seated upon the exterior stone, which has been rolled from the entry door. Contrarily, the two Maryam's do not encounter, well, there are actually more Maryam's than that, but do not encounter an angel until after they enter the tomb and see him seated upon the right side, according to Marcus. So which is it? I have been to the garden tomb outside of Yerushalim and can easily imagine either scenario. Though I, just so you guys know, I highly, highly speculate that the, um, the, the sepulcher uh, location may be the legitimate one, but that's a side argument. In the instance that you haven't, I am including two pictures which might help the investigation along. According to Yahu, the stone was very likely rolled stage left. The ladies would have encountered him there. And I think almost all the, the, the first century tombs that we find that the, the stone rolls to the left. Uh, but then in Marcus, they entered to the tomb and immediately looked to the right. To the right is the bed where the body of Yahushua Hamashiach would have been laid, wrapped in the shroud. An angel was seated there. The description is so precise that one might begin to suspect Marcus had personally visited the tomb again i will ask which is it my answer is both there are there are your two angels one sat within and the other without what i'm still unclear on is whether or not the angel remained on the stone when the miriams arrived would they have even dared to pass him by if he were still standing guard i think not and according to bizarre kifa they were really terrified read math again the way the scene plays out it makes it appear as though the Mariams were witness to the angel's arrival. If so, then it would would be the only accounts. Obviously, the angel or angels were the first to arrive on the scene. Hopefully, you guys aren't being confused by all these, how wordy this is. They arrived as a pair, telling us that their purpose was to relieve the two soldiers under Petronius of their post. Only afterwards did the ladies enter the garden. The mocking Yahudim were probably dispersed by that point seeing as how they're never mentioned in any other gospel and then here's an edit nope i read further ahead the camping trip continued and we'll get to that so when these two angels appear in the dead of the night the jews are there too they they are witnessed it's crazy that the yahudim the unbelievers are witness to the resurrection and not the talmudim and so if i had to guess the angel sitting upon the stone was not seen by the mariams when they passed Then again, he may have been walking about the grounds, for all I know, ousting the last of the naughty parachine from the bushes. If you guys got that right. So we're seeing the angel sometimes in some accounts, they see him on the stone outside. In other accounts, they don't see they do not see an angel until they enter within. So um, take that for what it is. And we read this in lucas 24 now on the first day of the week very early in the morning they came to the sepulcher bringing the spices which they had prepared and searching others with them and they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher and they entered in and found not the body of adonai Yahusha. and it came past as they were much perplexed thereabout, about behold two, two men stood by them in shining garments so again they enter the tomb without seeing an angel there's no angel on the stone outside when they answer in this account they're both they both appear on the inside Dr. Lucas includes two angels, though neither angel can be found seated upon the stone or the burial bed, as the two other gospel writers claim. They're standing this time and simply appear after the Miriams express their perplexity at the missing body. They see the body first or the lack of a body first and then the two men. Are the women still in the tomb or have they exited by this point? It's unclear. This is somewhat of a guessing game, and it's my research paper, which means it's my turn to formulate all the hypotheses. Uh, you guys are free to write your own paper and, and present it. From Lucas's point of view, the two men were always present at the tomb. They were simply not seen until the moment when they were. Well, then I will ask again, which is it? I'm of the opinion that Lucas, the bi- biography, was attempting to fill in the details to the best of his ability. He simply knew, see, for some people, this is an unexcusable, uh, non-tolerable discussion to be had because it's, it's, you you can't, you can't observe that there are, you know, different points of views from testimony Um, because this is all, according to some, this is all Holy Spirit breathed, which means there's only one test testimony and it's the Ruach. None of, none of these people, they don't count. He simply knew the women were perplexed at two angels and glossed over the finer, 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 finer details in that way. The timing of their appearance, as well as where they were standing, is not intended to be precise. What I'm saying is Lucas may have not known when the angels, you know, in what order they saw them and when he just basically he knew that there were two angels and he said they appeared to them. He wasn't really sure on the specifics. That's what I'm saying. But then to be fair, sitting down is no way to salute a lady. When the women saw the angel on the burial bed, do you really suppose he sat with his sunglasses on, coolly smoking a cigarette while speaking with them? No, he rose to his feet when speaking as any knight of the realm would when esteemed ladies of the court enter a room. The second angel may have very likely entered the room after them. And then here's my edit. Nope, again, the second angel was already in the room. You shall see why as my commentary on Missouri continues. All right. And then we read this in Yokanan uh, chapter 20. Now upon the first day of the week came Miriam of Midgol early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre and saw the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she ran and came to Shimon Kepha and to the other Talmudim or the, the other Talmud, whom Yahushua loved, and said unto them, They have taken away Adonai out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. The resurrection narrative takes yet another squeeze out of the grape in the last of the four canonical Gospels, the, the non-synoptic non-syn- one. There, there are no angels in Bazorah Yochanan. Miriam simply arrives at the sepulchre to see the stone removed. She then runs in the direction of the Talmudim to tell them about it. A, possi- a possible scenario is that Yochanan simply skimmed right over the incident with the angels when giving us the details. But then why does Miriam tell Kepha that they have taken away the body of Adonai if the angels already explained the situation to her? It seems as though she would have known by this point in the character, uh, this point in the character development. The angels do appear in Yochanan's gospel, by the way. They simply don't apprehend her until she returns to the sepulchre on the second go around. Read it for yourself. Chapter 20, again. But Miriam stood without at the sepulchre weeping and as she wept she stood down she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and saw two angels in white sitting the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of yahusha had lain and they say unto her woman why do you weep she said unto them because they have taken away my adonai and i know and i know now where they have laid him It i guess and i know not there you go rebecca there's another one and i know not where they have laid him and when she had, I you probably didn't realize Rebecca. I, I should have given you like a legal, like yellow notepads, and I take notes. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Yehusha standing, and knew not that it was Yehusha. According to Marcus, Miriam counted one angel on the burial bed during her first visitation to the sepulcher, whereas here she has returned, and there are two of them. Seeing as how I've already outed myself and admitted here, as well as in other places, that I believe Mary of Magdal is the betrothed of Yahushua HaMashiach, I might as well state my other applicable uh, um, conclusion: Mary of was the person whom Yochanan received his notes from, by which he wrote his gospel. Hold your horses! I can I expect to develop that uh, that thought a little later down the line. It certainly helps to explain why Bezorah-Yokunan is not a synoptic uh, diverging greatly in places from the other accounts, particularly where Miriam is involved. She is giving her personal testimony, and they differ somewhat from the others who seem to speak on her behalf. Well, then, notice how Miriam did not recognize Yahusha when she turned around from the two angels. Fascinating, no? This is coming from a woman, I'll say it, a widow overcome with grief. Her heart is pounding at the uncertainty of what she is experiencing. The spiritual curtain is being lifted upon her in ways she never imagined possible. She is running back and forth through the unfolding events while attempting to report the news, seemingly dislodged from the currents of time. She doesn't recognize Yehusha, but then another thing which Yoh- Yohanan fails to mention is the soldiers keeled over like wet noodles, fresh from the boiling pot. Miriam very likely had to maneuver around and over and around them to climb into the tomb, or in the very least, try not to step on their fingers. But did she even see them? Is it possible that Miriam was spoken to by the angels during her first stopover and simply had no clue what was going on? Did she think they were the guards? For all I know, the traumatic events of of that morning, particularly everything leading up to that day, are bleeding together. It would take an appearance by Husha to set her straight again. There are other observations in Bizarre Kifa 21 worth mentioning, the voice from heaven being one of them. It is not the last that we shall hear of the voice, and so I will save it for another hour. Another notable mention involves the stone being rolled away. Kepha says it rolled on its own, meaning the angels didn't lay a hand on it. That really got to me when I, when I saw that. It took me a while to see that. That too can only come from the testimony of someone like Petronius, Isn't it badass, though? Uh, The angels moved the stone simply by wishing that it should be so. And it was so. And I know what you're already thinking. Well, I'll speak for myself. And what I'm thinking, the mustard seed comes to mind. And we read this. Then came the Talmudim to Yehusha apart and said, why could could not we cast him out? The the demon, the the evil Rulakoth. And Yahushua said unto them, because of your unbelief, For, amen, I say to you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible for you. Yahushua said the faith surmounting from the little grain of mustard seed is surmountable to casting an entire mountain aside. I have read the commentary from those who have tried to explain this away to mean other things. Anything other than the most straightforward and obvious, despite there uh, being actual scripture, which claims the feat was done. And we see this in the infancy bazaar of Yaakov. Then as Elishiva, that would be Elizabeth, sighed, she said with a loud voice, Mountain of Elohim, take me, a mother with her child for Elishiva was too afraid to go up higher, and at once the mountain split open and received her, and there was light shining through the mountain to her, for an angel of Yehua was with them, guarding them. Elishiva, or Elizabeth, as most of of you know her, was in relation to Yahusha, the aunt of Miriam, being the sister of Anna, her mother. The context is that Herod the Great was attempting to reverse engineer the head-crushing serpent prophecy by hunting down Mashiach as well as Yochanan the baptizer. While in pursuit, Elishiva calls upon a mountain to split open in a does. like these, these dudes are actually chasing, like hounding her down like dogs. She's got a baby, she's running, there's a mountain in the way, she can't get around it, she can't get over it. She prays, split this mountain open and boom, it just cracks open. It was of course a response to her praying, but then why even mention the angel if he wasn't the one doing the deed? Perhaps passages like Bazar kepha 21 are showing us how it will be done someday by those of us who are resurrected from the dead. You know, you think and it will be so. The Zorikipha 22. And of course you saw there, I put the picture from the matrix, right? There is no spoon. Um, All right. Verse 22. When therefore those soldiers saw it, they awakened the centurion and the elders, for they too were hard by keeping guard. And as they declared what things they had seen, again, they saw the three men come forth from the tomb. I actually find this pretty pretty humorous, this whole scene, and two of them supporting one and a cross following them, and of the two, the head head reached to the heaven, but the head of him who was led by them overpassed the heavens. Oops, that was embarrassing, and here I thought the weekend camping trip had come to an end. Looks like the Yahudim were still present and accounted for and snoring loudly on the pillow when the two angels arrived. The reason why they are never mentioned is because they slept through their arrival, which is also embarrassing for them. Imagine snoozing in the passenger seat, and the driver nearly hits Sasquatch in the road. Moving forward, the narrative becomes even more, dare I say, eerily comical. The soldiers wake up Petronius and the elders to let them in on top of the in on top of the new hour news. Let me say that again. Petronius and the elders, uh, The soldiers wake up Petronius and the elders to let them in on top of the hour news. Their seven-sealed contraption has been tampered with. Also, they missed out on the resurrection. Well, not quite. We aren't certain how long it took to rouse everyone from their sleep, the Yahudim as well as the Romans, but I'd like to think the lightning radiance of the angels as well as the explosive light of Yahusha's resurrection within the shroud and whatever else was going on in the crypt uh the crypt sound wise would be in the very least observed by the groggy eye notice how nobody does anything about it the romans don't form a swat team and break in and the yahudim wouldn't dare they all just stand around in the darkness attempting to figure out what the sheol is going on the two soldiers are still describing what just went down and i can imagine they repeated their frantic account a few times over when i mean imagine like like this like this whole scene is going down in a crypt, right? And like <laughs> these spirit, you see these two spirits enter a tomb and, and like you see this light in there. and you're, It's like, you know, a campfire a horror story, right? Everyone's shaking in their boots and not knowing what to do. Anyway, uh, three men emerge from the tomb. Two are supporting one, which is a very different picture of the resurrection than what I've ever previously envisioned. We always see you know yahushua just coming out himself but i imagine like his arms are around their shoulders and they're like they're holding him up and carrying him out then again the resurrection is seemingly always depicted in the early morning rather than the dark and frosty cold hours of the night likewise we are always shown mashiach rising up by his lonesome not so this time around he had two helpers in the awakening and rising up process but then there is the matter of his needing support from the bed to the door Are we encountering a translation issue? Is the text saying Yahushua received the escort expected of a royal, or were the angels being used as physical crutches? It's hard to tell uh, based on what we have. The entire scene plays out very much like what I have read elsewhere in the visions of Paul, which primarily deals with what happens to a person immediately after they die. Also, uh, to be mentioned here, second Esdras, which talks about the same thing. I don't intend to show you everything scripture has to say regarding the Ruach of the dead Nefesh after he dies, as that would take a book. And you can see the page number stacking up on this one already. We're on page 200, by the way, if you need caught up. Whether righteous or wicked, the main point is that the Ruach of the dead Nefesh appears to be escorted to the afterlife by not one but two angels, which is precisely what we see here. That that really excited me when I saw that connection. Uh, so this is from the visions of Paul, chapter 14. I indeed, when I had heard this sighed and wept and said to the angel, I wish to see the ruach of the just and of sinners, and to see in what manner they go out of the body. And the angel answered and said to me, look again upon the earth. And I looked and saw all the world. Oh, there's a nice flat earth passage right there. And men were as naught and wanting. And I looked carefully and saw a certain man about to die and the angel said to me this one whom thou sees is a just man and i looked again and saw all his works whatever he had done for the sake of elohim's name and all his desires both what he remembered and what he did not remember they all stood in his sight in the hour of need and i saw the just man advance and find refreshment and confidence and before he went out of the world the holy and the impious angels both attended so there's two of them there's both and i saw them all but the impious found no place of habitation in him but the holy took possession of his soul guiding it till it went out of the body and they roused the soul saying soul know thy body whence thou goes out for it is necessary that thou should return to the same body on the day of the resurrection that thou mayest receive the things promised to all the just receiving therefore the soul from the body they immediately kissed it as fami- uh, familiar, familiarly known to them, saying to it, do manfully, for thou hast done the will of Elohim while placed in the earth. And there came to meet him the angel who watched him every day, that would be the guardian angel, and said to him, do manfully, soul, for I rejoice in thee, because thou hast done the will of Elohim on earth, for I related to Elohim all their works such as they were. And just in case I don't mention it here, you can refer 2nd Ezra's, Second witness, same account. The vision before Paul is one which has to do with the dead soul of a righteous rock, which he sees in real time as it departs from the world. And though I know it doesn't outright suggest there are two angels with absolute clarity, I have highlighted the part where it says the angels both attended, both, as in they arrive in pairs. What is not made immediately clear is if his guardian angel is one of them. His angel is signed with the task of watching him every day is either included among the pair, or he joins the, the trio to rejoice in the works he performed for Elohim. Uh, though you would think the guardian angel would kind of be standing around. The fact that Bezorah Kifa has Yahusha being supported by the two angels, perhaps even his guardian angel, kind of interesting to think about that he could have a guardian angel, seems to complement the idea that they not only rouse his nefesh, but they also kissed and embraced him within the sepulcher, tending to his every need. So what I'm saying here is that the scene we're literally seeing of these two angels entering, according to this text, according to 2nd Ezra, they would have actually been arousing his, his soul and embracing him and kissing him and waking him up and saying, all right, let's go. In this way, the two angels were giving him the red carpet treatment treatment on his trip to heaven. Continuing with the visions of Paul, and again I saw, behold, a soul which was led forward by two angels, weeping and saying, "Have pity on me, just Elohim, Elohim the Judge. For today is seven days since I went out of my body, and I was handed over to these two angels, and they led me through to those places which I have had never seen." The second dead nefesh spotted by Paul was that of an unrighteous person, and though his sins as well as his fate holds no resemblance to Yehusha Hamshiach whatsoever it couldn't be any more evident this time around that there are two angels rousing him from the body leading him to his final destination in the same way the unrighteous nefesh is greeted by his guardian angel and we see this here continuing and uh and when they had led it forth the customary angel preceded it and said to it oh wretched nefesh i am the angel belonging to thee Relating daily to Yahuwah, thy my line works. Whatsoever that thou didst by night or day, and if it were in my power, not for one day would I minister to thee. Ouch. But none of these things was I able to do. So he was given a well, I'll finish this here. The the judge is pitiful and just. And he himself commanded us the guard the class of guardian angels that we should not cease to minister to the nefesh till you should repent but thou has lost the time of repentance i indeed was strange to thee and thou to me let us go on then to the just judge i will not i will not dismiss thee before i know from today why i was strange to thee and the ruach confounded him the angel troubled him there's another account i was reading recently um of uh, a guardian angel account where the 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 soul of the dead person he's going with his guardian angel and he sees all the evil ruachoth who were actually telling him what to do in life and the angel says i i telling tell you not to listen to these guys and you just listen to these guys the, the whole time it's like oh man just think about uh, like all these this idea that there's all these evil spirits around us just like barking orders at us and we like listen to them and our guardian angel is just like oh my goodness stop stop listening to these guys it seems to me that the guardian angel is not counted among the two who aroused the nefesh from the body. he greets the dead nefesh at a later moment on his journey indicating that it was business as usual for the two angels at the sepulcher well sort of i mean obviously we are dealing with a resurrected body on this go around which furthermore explains why the weakened campers were capable of seeing the three men to begin with. It wasn't simply a collection of a dead Nefesh they were after, which is the other thing. I am well aware that the collection of a dead Nefesh and Yehusha's resurrection are two separate things. That much is even made known in uh, the visions of Paul 14. Uh, it's got makaze Me- Paul 14 when the angels have the dead nefesh make note of his body's coordinates the reason being is that he will be in need of it at a later hour he needs to know where it is so he can go back for it we, what we are not told is whether or not the two angels are there to help them at the resurrection i think i know what is happening though normally when a man dies he is given seven days to cruise around the greater realm with the two angels to guide him before being disposed deposited the shield we actually saw that with the with the wicked man in here he says that he was being escorted by these two angels for seven days and it was the hour was up seven days are up you're going to your eternal abode now i didn't mention at the time but the information was given to us in visions of paul 17 1. supposing you require a second witness and you should then we read the exact same thing in second ezra In ezra uh, uh, revi which says, then I answered and said, this is Ezra uh, speaking, will time therefore be given to the souls after they have been separated from the bodies to see what you have described to me? And he said to me, they shall have freedom for, there it is, seven days. So that during these seven days, they may see the things of which you have been told and afterwards they shall be gathered into their habitations. And of course, this is really important uh in second interest it says not to mourn for someone longer than seven days uh we see in Jasher they would it goes way back with the hebrews they would mourn only for seven days and when they would mourn they would put on a Big show, like we see this with Elias with Lazarus, right? When Yehusha shows up, they're out there. They got the musicians out there in the street banging on drums, and they got all, you know, blowing on trumpets. I'm sure and they're wailing and crying, and around the tomb and up and down the streets. And I personally think the reason they're doing that is for the partly for the dead. I know some people will say this is like worship of the dead, but I think in their worldview, they know that the the, the ruach, uh, the ruach of a dead nefesh can see them i mean think about that like when you're dead like you might be able to see what's going on at your funeral what people are saying about you and i think that they really want to let the 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 dead nephesh know like we we are mourning for you we miss you Um, all right so the context in this passage that we just read starts much earlier on i would suggest verse 75 onwards i started verse 100. For those of you who've never read Second Ezra before, it describes those who've lived a righteous life via the works of the Torah versus those who have not. Who, they were lawless. They snubbed the Torah. They thought it was done away with, just as uh, Visions of Paul does. And in both instances, the dead Nefesh is given a total of seven days to explore all uh, that the afterlife offers. There's that 204, Rebecca. That <laughs> I don't know how that happened. To explore all that the afterlife offers before being put down to sleep. Yehusha was never given that opportunity. By all accounts, he went directly to Sheol. So what I'm saying is that the the account with Yehusha going to Sheol is, I wouldn't say it contradicts, but it's it's different from all the accounts we're given in scripture, where you don't go to Sheol until seven days later. He went directly to Sheol. Of course, the reason we see right here, while all the saints were rejoicing, behold, Satan, the prince and captain of death, said to the prince of Sheol, Prepare to receive Yehusha of Nazareth himself who boasted that he was the son of Elohim and yet was a man afraid of death and said, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Uh, Besides, he did many injuries to me and to many others. For those whom I made blind and lame and those also whom I tormented with several devils, he cured by his word. I just, I don't know if several means seven there. Maybe, maybe not, but the only person we know that had seven devils was uh, Miriam Amigdal. Anyways, I just saw that. But yea, and those whom I brought dead to thee, he by force takes away from thee. Specifically, it was Hasatan who personally escorted him to Sheol. There is always that wise guy in the room, too smart for his own good, who likes to induce leg cramps into the conversation by saying that Hasatan just means, quote unquote, the accuser, and that there are many Satans, not just one. Yeah, well, this one is identified as the prince and the captain of death. So there you go i would even go so far as to relate him to samael the angel of death i am not intending to pursue a bible study regarding every single appearance of samael and how he plays the part of the angel of death though quickly in the aramaic targum we read and the woman beheld samael the angel of death and was afraid yet she knew that the tree was good to eat and that it was medicine for the enlightenment of the eyes and desirable. Desirable tree by means of which to understand, and she took of its fruit and did eat, and she gave to her husband with her, and he did eat. So that comes from Beersheath or Genesis 3 6 in the aramaic Targum. My conclusion is that the serpent in the garden was Samael, and that he was also very likely the angel of death during the Exodus episode. He goes by many names, Azazel being one of them, but that is a conversation for another commentary. The point I'm trying to make here is that hasatan Leh Hasatan. Like not the satans, but the big guy, A.K.A. the prince and captain of death, is not the grim reaper in so much that one entity cannot possibly escort each and every nefesh to Sheol. Such a task would be an impossible one. No, it requires an innumerable myriad of angels working in pairs to escort each dead nefesh through his seven-day tour of the cosmos. They're like the tour guides. It's kind of a cool thought to be you know have that badge i'm you know you die and it's like hey look i'm your tour guide you've got a big old foam finger let's go let's go see the cosmos see where you're going to end up or not end up hasatan's calendar is far too busy for all that but in the case of Yehusha hamashiach Samael canceled his appointments making a special exception to the rule he took mashiach directly to sheol thereby circumnavigating the usual meeting with elion up until this point, Yahushua should never have the red carpet rolled out for him. I'm thinking the Bazar Akifa incident records the beginning of his seven day journey and why Yehushah HaMashiach wouldn't appear to Tayon, that'd be Thomas, and the Talmudim as a group until the following Sabbath, right? So he, has, he he's going around on his, on his cosmological uh, magical mystery tour uh, for seven days, making some appearances along the way, of course. Now we read this here, I couldn't help myself with copy and paste this. Some of the early texts were quite bizarre. One tells the story of the Garden of Eden from the snake's point of view. Another uses the voice of a female spirit. Hmm, that's interesting. Another features a description of the resurrection with a walking and talking cross, a stone tomb door that moves by itself, heads that stretch to the sky and a voice that asks, have you preached to those who are sleeping? It was while on, on, uh, while on another reconnaissance mission in the Matrix that I stumbled upon the above statement. Yet another ministry group was chucking bizarre among other texts, early texts to the gutter on the basis that they're, quote unquote, quite bizarre. Well, I mean, when you think about it, the whole Bible is bizarre, but, you know, some is more familiar to us than others, right? Uh, and look at their reasons, why don't you? One utilizes the voice of a female spirit. Say it ain't so. That's a reference to the feminine Ruach Kakudesh. I shouldn't wonder. Don't worry, I, I shan't be neglecting her either. She will come up in this commentary. The other they speak of wherein we encounter a walking, talking cross, and a stone which moves by itself is undoubtedly a reference to Bizarra Kifa, as is the quote-unquote heads that stretch to the sky, L-O-L. It just goes to show how little thought anyone puts into these books, a little challenge to their cognition. It's the guillotine for you Write down the Thomas Crapper. Am I expected to believe the Roman soldiers saw Yehusha and the two angels walking out of the tomb with their feet planted upon the earth and that their necks kept stretching and stretching and stretching up far exceeding that of a giraffe. And so they bumped into the firmament, LOL. Oh, wait, this guy probably doesn't even believe in the biblical firmament. Their heads kept growing larger like a Macy's Day balloon until they entered outer space. Did I get that right? I simply can't understand these broken down animatronics anymore, shutting down at the first irregularity to their boring worldview. The most reasonable explanation is the most obvious one the angels descended from heaven in order to resuscitate Messiah in the sepulcher and now everyone present is watching the three of them ascend to heaven again what keeper's critics fail to realize or fails to appreciate is the distinct variation from the other gospel accounts wherein יהושע ascends to heaven 40 days after the fact the spark should have been flying at that one complete with the lost in space uh, the lost in space robots catchphrases that does not compute and danger Will Robinson, accompanied by filling his arms, you know, the robot. You got to been there and watch the show. I will admit that even I'm struggling. The first passage that comes to mind derives from Bazar Yolkanen, and it says this. Yahushua said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my yaw, and to your Yah." Yehusha tells Mary Mamigdal that he has not yet ascended to his father. I take that to mean he hasn't ascended to his father, plain and simple. But then in Kepha we read how the two of the heads of the angels reached to the heaven and that Yehusha's head reached beyond the heavens, indicating that he had traveled beyond the starry firmament. So what guess? That means that Petronius and his crew, as well as a handful of Yahudim, experienced the first ascension. Nothing else that I have read collaborates. Still though, I'm not willing to lie down without a fight. I think I have an idea of what's going on, even if it's a faint one. We read this in Bezora Nicodemon, 21. Then Adonai, holding Adam by the hand, delivered him to Mikael, the archangel, and he led them into paradise, filled with mercy and glory yahushua hamashiach had already led the righteous captives from sheol to paradise by this point before this scene happens i know it technically says adonai held adam's hand and that he delivered him to michael the archangel presumably it was michael who led the former inhabitants of sheol the rest of the way uh not yahushua but then have we already forgotten about demas the penitent thief on the cross? And this is what we read in Bizarre Lucas. And Yehusha said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. According to his own testimony, Yehusha had already entered paradise by that point. Of course, that's the war of the comma right there. He could be saying, Verily, I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise, right? The war of the comma. We don't really know. According to okay, according to his own testimony, Yehusha had already entered paradise by that point. I have already covered that part in Bezorah and Nicodemus 25 through 9. Demas is the first Ruach and recorded his story to completely circumnavigate Sheol and enter directly into paradise. And seeing as how Yahushua, so if you guys remember the scene, all the, the, the righteous from Sheol are, they've woken up. Yahushua came down, he breaks open the doors. They're all going up to paradise. And when they get up to paradise, they see a very strange sight. They see a man. Carrying the tav, who has uh, the sign of the the sign of the, the tav, who has never been in Sheol with him, and he's demas. He's the first uh, ruach to circumnavigate Sheol, and he goes directly to paradise. And seeing as how Yehusha said he would be there with him, I take that to mean he had already ascended, and which would make his climb above the firmament in Bizarre Kifa twenty-two a second successful effort. It will help to note that there are seven firmaments in heaven, uh, though, and not just one. Each firmament serves as the foundation for an entirely new heavenly world, as big as our own or bigger. Elion, our father, sits upon the highest uh, tire. It is very possible for Yahushua to enter paradise in third heaven without ascending all the way to the father. So... If you understand the cosmology here you got first heaven second heaven so you have the, the first firmament that we look up at there's first heaven above it and then another firmament and then a second heaven and then a third firmament and then paradise and you keep going up and up and up and up and there's a whole world stacked over each other and finally el Elion, the, the father of of Ruakoth, is at the very top so he could have gone up to the third heaven and not ascended to the father Yet another divergence from the typical resurrection account is that we see a cross following them. Is that the Tav? Yeah, I'm thinking it's the Tav. We have been over this already with Demas, the penitent thief on the cross who entered paradise with the Tav as per Bizarro Nicodemus 25 through nine. There is more I wanna say on what, why it's most definitely the, the 22nd and last letter of the Paleo Hebrew alphabet, but that will have to wait around for until the following verse and we'll get into it. When the Tav talks. Yes, you heard me right, it talks. There's your preview for our next session together. It will be a doozy for sure. Luckily, this will not be our next session because I'm gonna keep going. But I do need a, um, a drink here of coffee. Gonna get a little filler here. I think we're gonna go a little bit over our point of time tonight because I really wanna cover the next uh, couple sections. All right, Bezorah Kifa 23a, this is a big one I really wanted to cover tonight. And they heard a voice from the heavens saying, you have preached to them to sleep. And a response was heard from the cross, yay. Hearing a voice from heaven indicates that it's about to get biblical up in here. There are several occasions in the Gospels when the voice can be heard, namely at the baptism of Yahushua as well as his transfiguration. And now we can add Bezorah Kifa to our heavenly voice collection. But also the voice is often, though probably not always, a feminine one. And not always. Sometimes it's masculine. But mostly it's feminine. It certainly was at the baptism of Yehushah HaMashiach, a feminine one. I would, like, I would likewise say it was here. And as always, I will show you why I have come to that conclusion. And remember now, um, well, I'll cover this why it, it's not the Father talking here. For the entirety of my life, I was convinced that the Ruach HaKodesh was one of three dudes in heaven, but only because I was told by the boys down at seminary to read it that way, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. In every instance that I could find, the Ruach HaKodesh is described in the feminine. Though I was expected to invert her sex from a cisgender, there's a modern word for you, cisgender female to a trans man as a side of devotion as well as a test to my faith ridiculous avoiding all language studies for the moment the initial problem we run into comes from Yehusha hamashiach when he makes the following claim in bizarre yokanon he says and the father himself which has sent me has borne witness of me ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape when Yehusha claims that the yahudim have never heard the father's voice at any time I take that to mean nobody has heard the voice of the father before, certainly not the Yahudim, that includes the whole of the Bible. What do you take it to mean? Even if Yahusha's quip is uh, constrained to no other generation but his own, that is still a problem considering that a voice was heard from heaven at his baptism. Three different gospel accounts record the voice, though ironically, Yohanan isn't one of them. Well, here they are. So, We see in Bezorah, Matthew 3.17, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my Yaqid, or beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Bezorah, Marcus. And there came a voice from heaven saying, you are my Yaqid, beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And Lucas. And the Ruach HaKadosh descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, you are my Yaqid, beloved son, and you I am am well pleased. And then we see another count here from... Bezorah, Hebrews, or the Lost Gospel of the Hebrews. And it came to pass when Adonai was come up out of the water, the whole founts of the Ruach Hakadesh descended upon him and rested on him and said to him, my son and all the prophets, was I waiting for thee that thou shouldst come and I might rest in thee for thou art my rest. Thou art my first begotten son that reigns forever. I have just given you the three gospel accounts containing the voice from heaven, as well as uh, Bezorah, Hebrews, as an added bonus, making four mentions in all. But you didn't see that one coming. I am full of all sorts of surprises today. In the first two accounts, Matthew, Yahoo, and Marcus, we are only told of the voice from heaven. The voice declares Yahusha to be the Yaqui, which means beloved son. In Lucas alone, do we read of the Ruach Hakadesh? and it is likewise in that gospel in which the dove is described in direct correlation with the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. Take a mental note of that. Bezorah uh, Hebrews, on the other hand, takes the next logical step in identifying the Ruach Hakadesh, the dove, as the speaker read what she says if you haven't done so already. It will be somewhat jarring for the first time reader, and I know I kind of just threw it in there expecting you to swim through the deep end of the gender pool, or in the very least, doggy paddle with a leg cramp. Hopefully, those of you who are holding out in this uh, theological game of Red Rover, even though I am calling your name, will see why it is perfectly logical to come on over to my side of the argument. And we see once again in the Lost Gospel of the Hebrews, the Zora Hebrews, even so did my mother, the Ruach HaKodesh, take me by one of my hairs and carry me away onto the great mountain Tabor. Before getting too far into this, I thought it would be a good idea to throw yet another quote from the Lost Hebrew Gospel into the fray. I don't have context for what is happening because we only have quotes from this uh, this lost book. But Mount Tabor is where Yahushua was transfigured. And what do we see happening? Yehusha's mother, the Ruach HaKodesh, is responsible for carrying him there. Oh, gee. You have to wonder why the church fathers had all the pages ripped out of this one. Well, there is your other primary voice from heaven passage in the Gospels. The transfiguration, which Matthew 17.5, Marcus 9.7, and Lucas 9.35, but not Yochanan, all document. Interesting, because, like I said, Yokanan's getting his um his information from a woman. He's writing her gospel, and she wasn't there. We probably have four witnesses now, as though that is still yet undetermined until the Vatican releases one of their s- several copies in the vault of the uh, the lost Gospel of Hebrews. Yahusha's mother gave him the transfigurative glow that we've all read about moving on. Just so you know, Yehusha made multiple arguments which happened to line up with the rabbis. I don't have time to go into every mutual agreement now, but Bezorah Yochanan 537 happens to be one of them. We already went over that passage like two pages ago in case you've already forgotten. It's the one where nobody has heard the voice of the father. Well, the first century Yahudim, that goes for AD as well as BC, all claimed it wasn't the father they were orally hearing from, And even had a name for the voice the voice the bath coal literally means the daughter of the voice so when yahushua said this that no one has heard the father the pharisees were standing around going yeah i agree on that point we weren't hearing the father bath or bat as it is sometimes known is in as in Bathsheba, or more appropriately Bathsheva, is the hebrew word for daughter meaning the female equivalent of ben okay so you have bats or ben right which would indicate a son, uh, Benwood. Kol, of course, means voice. And so Batkol, because because Ruach HaKodesh does the talking, and she is feminine, you see. All right, so I'm not gonna read that uh, little copy and paste job there on the kol, daughter of voice. There are numerous websites which I could link to. The Jewish Encyclopedia is always a good one in times such as these. I took the scissors out to this one, uh, the, the link right there. However, on the basis that it knows we are distracted people living busy lives, and just they just light it out there. Do some fact-checking, and you will see that it agrees with the rest. Here's the gist of it. The back call, according to this website, uh, is generally understood to be a manifestation delivering a divine message proclaiming Elohim's will or judgment. It is sometimes described as an echo of the divine voice although the nature of the Sid echo cannot be described in normal terms now the Bat happens to make her way into the aramaic targum a source which i enjoy quoting from every now and then and so some context after the deaths of ur and onan the notorious milkman handshakers yehuda slept with tamar thinking she was a common prostitute but then sired a child with her a problem since he still had Another son to hand her off to. Her pregnancy nearly resulted in a good old fashioned burning at the stake. And then we read the following. And Yehuda acknowledged and said, Tamar, so she's about to be burned, right? And he interrupts the scene as they're like going to light the match. Tamar is innocent. She is with child by me. And the back hole fell from heaven and said, From before me was this thing done. And let both be delivered from judgment. And Yehuda said, because, so basically, it was the, the, the Ruach HaKadosh, the backhole, who, who orchestrated uh, Aaron Onan's uh, notorious uh, <laughs> milkman handshaker episode. And Yehuda said, because I gave her not to Sheila, my son, how this happened to me, but he added not to know her again. Well, 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 look at who is playing the liaison on this particular occasion. Matchmaking has historically been a woman's profession. And as you can see, the Batkul was behind the Yehuda and Tamar operation. Moving on, I could link you to so many quotes from the Talmud that it is not even funny. We would be here all day. As a reminder, I do not subscribe to the Talmud and just for everyone out there. And in fact, I'm opposed to much and most, though, not all of it, particularly as it serves as a source of information some of which happens to agree with other texts which is one of the reasons i quote from it sometimes well here is one of them uh, rabbi eliezer said when the jewish people accord accorded uh precedence to the declaration we will do over we will hear a divine a divine voice uh, actually right there it's the, the word back emerged and said to them who revealed to my children this secret that the ministering angels use as it is written bless Uh, Bless Yahuwah, you you angels of his, you mighty in strength that fulfill his word, hearkening into the voice of his word. Psalms uh, 103.20 that comes from Shabbat 88.80. From this passage, we can deduce that the back hole is not the voice of the most High. Oh, and I almost forgot to mention that the context is the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. The biggest fallacy is that the Hebrews are referred to as the Jewish people, when in fact the Jewish people wasn't a thing until the Second Temple period. But you're not going to really see that in the the Talmud, I don't think. In fact, I've spoken to multiple Jewish people who were shocked at my claims that they weren't always Jewish, that there was actually a thing called the children of israel like they're not taught this stuff in the synagogue maybe some synagogues but you know the standard synagogue probably not such a claim is a naughty no-no on so many levels and helps to explain the modern religion of judaism exceptionally well being a child of the Parashim, though sadly much of christianity doesn't recognize the difference either so i could you know pit judaism as a problem but christianity you know they they don't teach them about all this stuff i totally understand that pass- that passages such as these cannot be used as courtroom evidence though i hope you can at least appreciate the bat referring to yashirel as my children and this isn't the father speaking the only situation where the divine voice other than the father of rule can refer to yashirel as my children and still relay textual ambiance is if the ruach Kakadesh is doing the talking which she is in this instance all right, so we see another quote here I clipped out. The back. Cool is sometimes envis- envisaged as a dove. The voice of the back cool might be loud or soft according to circumstances, but the quality of the tone was considered noteworthy. So the next characteristic from the link I provided hits even closer to the batter's plate. The back cool is sometimes envisaged as a dove. There is your Lucas 322 connection. The Ruach HaKadosh takes on the form of a dove, but then again, so does the back hole. I am starting to detect more and more coincidences. How about you? And now you're probably wondering why I've included a picture of the old man. What I'm about to show you may come across as another drop in the bucket of distractions, but that's how it goes with research. Jerome had a thing for skulls, and don't ask me why. I know that's not the reason you're here, but the sheer amount of artwork. Depicting him with one has been bugging me all morning. I mean, I just started going online, and he's like, look at this, skull, skull. Just the guy surrounded himself with skulls. See what I mean? I just gave you an entire page of illustrious examples. Jerome had a thing for skulls. That and his obsession with red sashes and togas or robes. They are nearly always red. Sometimes he'll even go with red loins while wearing no shirt at all. Well, more on Jerome in a moment, because the word for spirit in Hebrew and Aramaic is ruach, as you know in this commentary, or there's the Hebrew word in the modern script if you can read it. That should be self-evident by this point. Its basic meaning is wind or breath, and in both cases, the grammatical gender is always feminine. Contrarily, the ruach is neutered in Greek, uh, pneuma, and made masculine in Latin, spiritus. So this is one of the reasons I don't like to write spirit, because spirit, by the very word, is masculine. Make a mental note of that. Translators of scripture chose the word pneuma because it denotes breath and the wind. They weren't thinking about the gender so much as they wanted to emphasize breath. But even revelation the gospels were written in Hebrew, as I have shown. A true Hebrew writer understood full well that every jot and tittle of the holy language is purposeful. In Hebrew, there are no coincidences. It's all because of Jerome, you know. The reason why nobody knows the Ruach Kakadesh is feminine and Latin, most most definitely Latin. His wiki article is all over the, the skull look, by the way. What I can't seem to figure is why he's so repulsed by what appears to be the Von trap girls, albeit the patristic age, backed by lutes and a harp while dressed in their finest later hose and no less. Still can't part company with the infamous skull. It seems as has become the norm in these paintings. He was an odd fellow. He was just <laughs> repulsed by all these girls coming and he's got to, he just wants to be alone. Just leave me alone with my skull. Well, it is the person who we know as Jerome who personally translated uh, scripture from Greek, but also from Hebrew into Latin. We are told he was born anywhere in between 342 and 347, but then died in 420, and that the Bible was uh, translated into Latin in 400, according to the official narrative. His version would then become the most prominent and standard version of the Bible until 1530, according to the official narrative. I pulled out a calculator and did the math on that. We're talking over 1,100 years that church theology was built upon the personal stylings of Jerome according to the official narrative. However, one slices that cake, it still is. I think you know what I mean by that. Even though the Bible would then be translated into a variety of languages, many of his Latin ideas hung around. Uh, and just give you an example of this, the, the fascination with Hebrew is actually pretty new in the modern church. And um, as people are starting to discover this about the feminine ruach, their, their initial response is, well, that can't be true because that would mean all these people through history were wrong. And that just, that can't be, how could we think that, he, uh, the ruach was masculine, you know, three dudes in heaven, all the time, they'd be wrong about that. So in the gospel of the Hebrews, uh, oh okay, yeah. So while commenting on Yeshua chapter 11, Jerome wrote the following. In the gospel of the Hebrews that the Nazarenes read, all right, so we, we've read this, the, the false, the, the false, the lost Bezorah uh, of the Hebrews. He's quoting from it. It says, now no one should be offended by this because spirit in Hebrew is feminine, while in our language Latin, it is masculine, and in Greek it is neuter. In divinity, however, there is no gender. Well, that's interesting. I'm wondering if he Stuck to his guns on that argument. Jerome is explaining his translation process and why he has decided for everyone that the Ruach Hakodesh is not feminine on the basis that there is no gender in divinity. By the way, Jerome is also re- referring to the long lost Hebrew Bazaar, which I had early quoted, earlier quoted from. He is attempting to explain why the quips about the Ruach Kakadesh being Yehusha's mother is not to be taken literally, because, like I said, there is no gender in divinity. Right. I take it to mean Elion is not really our father. Then you can't have it both ways. You can't say there's no divine gender whenever the mother is named, so as to make her a third dude right alongside the father and the son. Also, did you get the part where he says it was the Gospel of the Nazarene? The Nazarene were Torah observant followers of Mashiach. Amazing how so little of their canon survived the purge. So the the canon we have is not you know. the the canon of the the Torah keeping um, followers of Mashiach. Keep reading Jerome's Wiki article and the claim is that he moved to Judea to strengthen his grip on the Hebrew language via rabbinical literature. Were there no synagogues in Athens or Rome? It was while in Jerusalem that he met a wealthy Roman aristocrat, Paula, who quote unquote funded his stay at a monastery in Bethlehem so that he might complete his translation there. Looks like he wasn't so repulsed by women after all when they had a purse. And then we read the following. Um, Hopefully I sum it up because I can't read that tonight. Turns out Jerome's so-called translation, hope you guys understand, I, I say this so often, I take these quotes, I clip them out of Wikipedia because I have written entire articles on Wikipedia, on their articles, and they, like, I'll just put quotes in myself And then I go back and they completely change the article to, you know, it makes me look like I'm making this stuff up. So I have to put it there. You know, it's going to take the the Mandela effect, I guess, to change it. Uh, it Turns out Jerome's so-called translation of the Hebrew Old Testament may have been a hoax. And after ancient Augustine utilized so much effort into frowning on Jerome's decision to gloss over the Greek which he said was inspired. Lol. Wiki is pressed to admit that modern scholarship has, uh, here's their quote, sometimes cast doubts on the actual quality of Jerome's Hebrew knowledge. Hmm. And then furthermore, many modern scholars believe that the Greek uh, Hexapla is the main source for his translation. So he was still reading from a Greek. Old Testament not a Hebrew no wonder Jerome puts so much emphasis on nothing being as it seems when dealing with the mother Ruach he may or may not have moved to a Judean monastery but that doesn't mean he mastered the Hebrew language by any means let alone learn to appreciate it that is why you have arrived here isn't it to tell me the Ruach cockiness is not feminine and that I should in no way take the language used literally as we are pretty much always dealing in metaphors and allegories or beatnik poetry night in heaven or whatever. then show me the scripture verse where I'm supposed to swap genders. Let's start with El Elyon, the father of Ruachov and Yahusha, his beloved son. I'll wait. They have both somehow managed to escape the tiresome figure of speech argument every single time being repeatedly described in the masculine. Yes, even when they land in poetry. It would be strange indeed for me to come to any other conclusion but father and son, don't you think? It's not father and daughter, it's father and son. Just show me the passage in scripture then which states, You have heard it said that wisdom is feminine, but that's silly as the Roman council has decided it's heretical to describe her as anything less than a man. In my experience, readers of scripture are commonly so concerned about having the, scratch that right, uh, expected answer for the heretical name callers as their salvation depends upon it, that hardly anyone seems interested in acknowledging or getting to know the set apart Ruach as she describes herself for us. I didn't want to have to do this, but I'm thinking now we will have to go back and start from the very beginning. Mm-hmm, I am pulling out the Genesis card. How far back to the beginning? Open your Bibles and turn to the second uh, verse. It says class. I don't know why I put class there. Rebecca, take notes on this. Where we will have our first meet? Oh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Well, whatever. Where we will have our first meeting with the Ruach of Elohim and water. So much water. What is she up to? The Ruach Hagadesh. Brewing the waters. Fermenting preparing for a renewal of life after the former world has been brought to ruin, holding back the darkness emerging from the abyss, among other activities. Let's find out what she's doing. Beersheath 1-2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Ruach Elohim moved upon the face of the waters. The word for waters in Hebrew is ma'i, actually the English language, apparently didn't get the memo, as the letter M in many ancient alphabets, such as the Phoenician and Greek, represent water ancient uh ugaritic used mim and the egyptians my while many modern languages employ words for water which still begin with m rather than w in spanish mar french mer like mermen or mermaids right german "meer"; latin "mare"; arabic ma ethiopic my and so on and so on and so on get with it english we're the only ones who use a w not a not an m Ma'yi is, of course, employed in Genesis 1 2. Here, spoken of as Ham Mayim. You can look up the word for yourself in Strong's Concordance, or better yet, I've already done it for you. And what do we see? We see uh, Strong's H4325, Mayim. And <laughs> I put there semen, not your, not your uh, father's uh, parents' Bible study tonight, kids. I highlighted semen. I realize you were probably content thinking only about water. But that's not how it goes in these types of bible studies i could devote a few pages to the subject or perhaps i should just let you off the hook and stating that the earth itself is a womb designed for the birthing of ruakoff and their semen in the second verse the father of ruakoff and the set-apart mother were anticipating the arrival of their children and i you know should point out that jubilees tells us that all ruakoff all See, I'm not going to say spirits, but all Ruachoth were born. They were created on the what day? The first day. So by the time she's hovering over the water, all the Ruachoth, that includes you and me, we were already created before the throne of the Father. Oh, now I did it. I've I had much to say over the course of this commentary, and you were tolerant over Pilate being innocent. But this time I've gone too far. Noel is a H-E-R-E-T-I-C. Best to remove the Joshua from his name. Again, you will tell me to cease and desist before somebody gets hurt, as I am twisting scripture in order to satisfy my own itching ears. Let's keep reading. (laughs) I was told that when I came over to the Torah, that I'm satisfying my itching ears. Let's keep reading then. Another important meeting with the Ruach HaKodesh will occur occur in Proverbs. And this time she will personally recount the very creation account, which we have just read. This is the reason why we went through this uh, for... Proverbs, Mishli, 8, 22, 31. It says, Yahuwah possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was, I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of the earth, and my delights were with the sons of men. Kind of strange, don't you think? I mean, that the Ruach HaKodesh identified in Proverbs as wisdom, cho- uh, Chokma in Hebrew or Sophia in Greek, would describe herself as a witness to the creation only to mismanage her own gender for the purposes of poetry. She was a dude hanging out with the father and the son, right? I said, bright. Right. You'd think falsely identifying oneself would break Torah and disqualify their witness. Also, that Yahuwah would create a Hebrew language which would properly assign, or at the very least, identify wisdom's gender. But no, I am not expected to make a deductive argument here. In reality, gender swapping and poetry is certainly not a practice which the Hebrews were interested in. Maybe people today, but not back then. But moral ambiguity is all the rage nowadays. Shaloma's woman, a in song uh, shaloma that solomon was probably in reality a homoerotic love affair yeah let's go with that or better yet how about we not the ruach hakodesh gives us yet another account of her his historical whereabouts during the creation week in Sirach chapter eight i checked she's still feminine moving forward we'll read the bulk of the chapter pausing only for a comment. we read in verse one wisdom shall praise herself and shall glory in the midst of her people. In the assembly of El Elyon, shall she open her mouth and triumph before his power. Pause. We are instantly told how wisdom is simply syrupy prose for abstract ideas and Platonism and properly trained theologians who can tool big words like dispensationalism because wisdom is neato and everybody should have some for themselves. So nobody will praise herself then, right? You tell me. I'm apparently already confused. This chapter isn't starting out on the right foot. I suppose the assembly of the set-apart will all stand around in the company of El Elyon, appreciating the imaginary concept which opens her mouth from time to time. Oh, that's right. We're only supposed to take scripture seriously on a selective basis. Therefore, we must be peering in upon a scene from the neighborhood of make-believe. Continuing, I came out of the mouth of El Elyon and covered the earth as a cloud i dwelt in high places and my throne is in a cloudy pillar that's interesting i didn't actually comment on this that she has a throne that's really interesting i alone encompassed the circuit the circuit of heaven and walked in the bottom of the deep and the waves of the sea and all in all the earth and in ever people and in every people and nation i got a possession so that's um, Nobody ever depicts the Ruach HaKadosh seated on a throne, the queen on her throne. That's a really interesting picture. Wisdom sounds an awfully lot like the Ruach to me, but let's keep reading just to be certain. We don't want to confuse the two. So going on to verse 7 here. With all these I sought to rest, and in whose inheritance shall I abide? So the creator of all things gave me a commandment, and he that made me cause my tabernacle to rest and said, let your dwelling be in Yaakov and your inheritance in Yashorel. He created me from the beginning before the world, and I shall never fail. In the holy tabernacle, I served before him, and so was I established in Zion. Likewise, in the beloved city, he gave me rest, and in Yerushalayim was my power. And I took root in an honorable people, even in the portion of Yahuwah's inheritance. <laughs> tabernacle, dwelling in Yaakov, inheritance in Yashorel. If that's not the Ruach HaKadosh describing herself among the children of Elohim, and then I don't know who else is. Seriously, I'm done. Sorry, Christianity. The Ruach HaKodesh resides with the congregation of Yasharil alone. No room for goyim. Best to be grafted in grafted in then, according to uh, Romans. Also, the Ruach HaKodesh was created. Right? Reading on. Though so that, of course, you know, goes against the Trinity argument. I was exalted like a cedar in Lebanon and as a cypress tree upon the mountains of Hermit. I was exalted like a palm tree in Engedi, and as a rose plant in Jericho, or Jericho. As a fair olive tree in a pleasant field, and grew up as a plain tree by the water, I gave a sweet smell like cinnamon, and esp- as la- uh, esp- and I yielded a pleasant odor like the best myrrh, as a gom- galbanum, and onyx, and sweet storax, and as the fume of frankincense in the tabernacle. As a turpentine tree, I stretch out my branches, and my branches are the branches of honor and grace. As the vine brought I forth pleasant savor, and my flowers are the fruits of honor and riches. And now we read that she likes flowers in orchards. Sounds rather woman-like, but maybe I'm overgeneralizing. Pleasant odors and sweet smells are totally a pastime for the third dude in heaven, apparently. A rosebush in yurico definitely feminine. Also, as well-known fact, as a well-known fact, is that masculine flowers produce pollen and no fruits and female flowers bear seeds or fruits. The fruit of the Ruach is feminine. And really, fruit is only ever attributed to either wisdom or the Ruach hakadesh, which again, is the same person. And they're both feminine, but it gets better. I, I need to phrase that right. You know fruit comes from the feminine plants i am the mother of of course you know fruit comes from the rule of too i am the mother of fair love and fear and knowledge and holy hope i therefore being eternal and given to all my children which are named of him so that concludes ecclesiasticus or Sirach 24 verses 1 through 18. Uh, there it is the crown jewel fit for a queen did the ruach just describe herself as a mother she did a mother with children to be exact an eternal mother too as in her motherhood is here to stay forever And then you see my little love of the sandlot there forever at the risk of being labeled a heretic should we gasp gender swamp? or am i allowed to leave her as she is notice precisely what the ruach is the divine mother of fair love you know how most people claim to read the Bible and then manage to sum up Elohim as strictly non-judgmental in love? They're describing their mother. Mothers are all about loving unconditionally, despite the fact that the fruit of her womb are little royals of one thing or another. Further descriptions include fear, knowledge, and set apart hope. Reminds me of Proverbs 9, whereas the fear of Yehuah is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. But also, all those who are named of him are her children. You see, attaining wisdom is impossible without first having a fear of Elohim. Makes sense. If any of us want to get to know the wife of El Elyon, we first have to go through the husband. Don't get proud or cocky and expect a private audience with the fairest maiden of the kingdom. Also, she doesn't babble like a Sunday morning whore. Nothing says contempt for the Heavenly Father's set apart Ruach, like somebody who fumbles around drunk on their ass in the spirit or whatever, pretending to bark like a dog on her behalf. The Ruach HaKodesh doesn't speak like that. Hookers and lollipop and lollipop girls might, but let's not confuse the holy with the profane. Seems to me that she's perfectly capable of speaking to us in scripture, and also is a voice from heaven without babbling continuing i said my two cents on that i think i will do a study on that one week though Come unto me all ye that be desirous of me and fill you yourselves with my fruits for my memorial is sweeter than honey and my inheritance than the honeycomb they that eat me shall get shall yet be hungry and they that drink me shall yet be thirsty here we are still in uh Ciroc 24. 13 through oh this should be should say 19 through 21 take notes rebecca we are told to eat and drink her as one might with honey from the honeycomb well that's weird definitely feminine but weird all the same but wait who else talked like that well yahushua did he said let all those who are troubled and oppressed come unto me and i myself will help you and carry my yoke upon you and learn from me that i am humble and restful of heart And you will find rest in your uh, nefeshoth, your soul, for my yoke is restful and my burden is easy. And again, he says, truth I say to you, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and do not drink his blood, you will not have life. But whoever eats my flesh and whoever drinks my blood will have eternal life, everlasting life, and I I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is the true food and my blood the true drink. He, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Well, I'll, that comes, of course, from Bizarro Yocanon. Well, I'll be. The apple does not fall far from the tree. Bodily food references must run in the family, I guess. The defining difference is that the mother is a fragrance and honey to be desired, whereas the son is bread. Bread is meaty and masculine. Rounds the hips, too. And what goes better with bread than honey? No wonder why an entire generation of Hebrews were withheld from the land of milk and honey. The land was the inheritance of the who, the Ruach HaKodesh, as we have seen as we in Sirach 24, and the children of Yashereel had disrespected the father, probably the mother too. No honeycomb for them then. Better keep eating the manna, which caused the sinners to poop. So perhaps now you can understand what blasphemy blasphemy of the Ruach is. We've all read the passage before but let's go over it afresh in the Hebrew. Hebrew Bezorah Matzithyahu. And in this respect I say to you that an iniquity of a curse will be atoned for the men except whoever says a curse against the Ruach HaKadosh for whoever speaks against the Ruach HaKadosh will not have atonement in this world or in the coming world. Blasphemy is essentially being held in contempt of court. What Yahusha seems to be saying here is that you can disrespect the father, and you can disrespect the son, but if you disrespect or curse the mother, then don't ever expect to enter the inner circle, or come over for Thanksgiving meal, and so on. I had earlier mentioned how ruach is neutered in Greek, but then made masculine in Latin. It took some heavy lifting via two exchanges of the pen, but that's how it's done, the sleight of hand. Readers of Hebrew could read about the feminine ruach, even if Jerome attempted to explain it away. The Greeks were uncertain. Latin scribes knew him only as a man. And now that scholars are finally reading Hebrew again, everyone's like, nah, nah, it's poetry, man. One might argue that the church fathers were arrogance of their decision, but then explain how the name was removed from scripture some 7,000 times and sub- substituted with the Lord, a title also used for a ale, not a coincidence. This is what I'm talking about, the total lack of respect for every member of the heavenly court. Blending feminine features into a masculine body, or vice versa, is an ancient practice of the mystery religions. Baphomet has boobs. Then again, Ishtar is a female decorated with male gender characteristics and other knobs. Her Canaanite counterpart, not is all woman except for the fact that she's also a bearded soldier. In esoteric terms, the initiated are directing traffic to the divine within. Her method. Uh, hermaphroditus may have had boobs but lift that skirt and she was also a dude if you get my drift and as you can see in this uh illustration from pompeii of all places not even pan the pedophile played that game he was (laughs) he's like lifting the sheets and he's like the pulse like i don't do that i'll do a lot of stuff i'm not doing that Defiantly reassigning the gender of the Ruach HaKadosh, despite the fact that she already identifies herself as feminine, as a mother, is aching and probably intended as androgyny. That's contempt right there, especially if you know you're doing it, or for the people that knew they were doing it. Proverbs 8 says, "Uh, Now therefore hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that guards my ways. Hear my instruction, and be wise, and refuse not. Blessed is the man that hears me watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoso finds me finds life and shall obtain favor of Yehua. But he that sins against me wrongs his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Seems like wisdom said it best. There is more of that blasphemy of the Ruach HaKodesh that everyone's trying to figure out. Now there is yet another voice from heaven moment, which hardly anyone seems to notice, though people quote from it often. Come to think about it, it may be the most repeated line in Revelation. For that reason, I don't even need to offer you a chapter verse, though I will do it anyways, because there's always that one person. And we read in Revelation 18.4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. We hear this all the time, you know, people write on Facebook. Come out of her, my people. That ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Voice from heaven, a voice from heaven indicates that we are having another Bat-Cole moment. I'm not saying that every voice from heaven is the Ruach HaKadosh. I mean, an angel might very well say something into the loudspeaker from time to time. It's obviously not the Father as established by Yehusha in Bezorah Yochum on 537 because nobody has heard his voice, right? And in fact, I've yet to stumble upon anyone who claims it is. The voice isn't an angel, though. It is directed at my people describing no angel that I've ever read about apart from Michael. It could be Michael. It's not him either, though. You might say her children, if we're not being too picky with the translation, as per Sirach 24 If you want my opinion on the passage, it sounds very motherly, all in all. She may have the love of a mother, but she also knows what's best for you and doesn't want any of her children defiled. The reason I can make this case is because of my commentary on the Odes of Solomon if you remember that. It was one of the earliest papers that I wrote, which saw evidence that the millennial kingdom of Yahushua HaMashiach has already happened, and in, in it, I think I was adequately able to show that the entire narrative takes place after the events of Revelation, as it, and is, in fact, a reflection upon it. Supposing you have read my report, then you may recall 033, wherein the Ruach HaKadosh speaks. She actually speaks often throughout, uh, throughout the book, but this one in particular is a doozy, so see it for yourself. But again, grace was swift and dismissed the corruptor and descended upon him to renounce him. And he caused utter destruction before him and corrupted all his work. And he stood on the peak of a summit and cried aloud from one end of the earth to the other. Then he drew to him all those who obeyed him, for he did evil, did not appear as the evil one. However, the perfect virgin stood, who was preaching and summoning and saying, O you sons of men, return, and you, their daughters, come. And leave the ways of the corrupter and approach me. And I will enter into you and bring you forth from destruction and make you wise in the ways of truth. Be not corrupted nor perish. Obey me and be saved for I am proclaiming unto you the grace of Elohim. And through me you will be saved and become blessed. I am your judge. And they who have put me on shall not be falsely accused. But they shall possess incorruption in the new world. My elect ones who have walked with me in my ways, I will make known to them who seek me, and I will promise them my name, hallelujah, the Odes of Solomon 33, 1 through thirteen. The Ruach HaKadosh, here referring to herself as the perfect virgin on earth as it is is in heaven, you know, is recalling that time when the Corrupter, aka the Antichrist, stood on the mountaintop and rallied the people to him. For a lifestyle apart from the Torah did not appear evil to them. It is for this purpose that she stood up, preaching and summoning to her children. And then look at what follows. She incites her message, which was summarized in Revelation 18.4. To sum this up, you probably thought I was summing it up several points earlier, but this time it's legit. I'm closing the shop down for the day and not backing down or stopping myself this time. In Bezorah 23, the voice from heaven asks Yahusha if he preached in Sheol while he was there for the day. And a reply is given that he had indeed fulfilled his mission. That's precisely the sort of question a mother might ask her son as soon as he returns home from his errands. All right. I'm going to end that there tonight. And um, I actually wanted to get through another 20 pages, but that was a somewhat uh, lengthy goal. I didn't make that hurdle because uh, I wanted to cross over straight from talking about the feminine Ruach and the request, the, the question she asked and actually going down into Sheol. With that, we're gonna end that there. And um, hopefully you guys, again, enjoyed that. And um, so, we, we don't need to take questions tonight, unless there was questions, but if not, that's okay. We can go over to the General Voice chat, we can talk over there. And my voice is kind of like ah, in the throat right now, it's kind of baking. So Shabbat Shalom one last time. Thank you for listening to my commentary. And I think we're gonna need one more session to finish the book and get through it and like i said it's going to be next month's selection of the month really looking forward to that and uh good night everybody i'll see you guys over in the general voice chat